Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today, we are going to talk about one of the most complicated figures in basketball history. Today is actually the first part of our first two-part series. So we will do half of the story today and the other half of the story next week. And I am very excited to bring this story to you. But I have to be honest, I actually hesitated doing an episode on Adolf Rupp because of the controversy that surrounds his legacy. But it's an important story, and he is an important figure in the history of this game. So as I was doing my research on Adolf Rupp, I had to place my emotions aside and just look at the man's accomplishments and do my best to put together a story that recognizes his contributions to the game of basketball, but also acknowledges the negatives that he brought to his team and career. My goal here is to provide as balanced of a story as I could. So let's jump right into the story. He was born on September 2nd, 1901 in Kansas, only 10 years after the game was invented. He was born into a farming family of modest means. He was afforded the opportunity to play a number of different sports, his favorite, of course, being basketball. On the farm, they attached a ring to a tool shed and practiced shooting using a feed sack stuffed with rags. And since there was no bounds to the sack full of rags, they could not practice their dribbling. They had to pass and shoot only. But this is how he and his older brother started learning the game. As a kid, he practically ran his youth team since none of the adults in town knew how to coach this game. Again, the game had only been invented in the previous decade. There was virtually nobody who could really claim to be an expert in basketball. But by simple trial and error, young Adolf learned what worked and what didn't work, and made sure that his team did the things that worked. Even at a young age, he was already displaying the mind and leadership of a great coach. As a teenager, he played basketball for Halstead High School where he played sparingly during his first two years. He traveled to school from his family's farm each day in a horse-drawn carriage. By his third year, he was a starter and started to earn a reputation as one of the stronger players in the area. During his fourth and final year of high school, he was named team captain by his teammates and he also served as the coach. You see, the coach they did have left to enlist into the military at the start of World War I. The school had no other male faculty members. So Rupp ran the team himself. He was a star of the team that year, averaging over 19 points a game, and was also a star on the football team. And when all that was done, it was time to go to university, where he ended up at the University of Kansas, where his life would change. There, he met two of the most influential men integral to the development of the game. The first was Dr. James Naismith, the inventor of the game. 
After inventing the game in Massachusetts, Dr. Naismith had moved to Kansas and had taken a teaching position at the University of Kansas. In an effort to help spread the game, Dr. Naismith started the basketball program at the University of Kansas and served as its first coach. By the time that Rupp arrived, Naismith was no longer the coach and just a regular faculty member, but he still hung around the basketball team offering guidance and advice. Rupp would develop a real bond with Naismith that lasted until Naismith's death in 1939. And I've got to be honest, this blew my mind. I mean, the guy was actually friends with Naismith. I mean, wow. The other man that had a huge influence on Rupp was the best player that Naismith had ever coached at Kansas. And that man was now serving as the current head coach when Rupp arrived on campus. That man was Forrest Fogg Allen, the father of basketball coaching. Allen was one of the very first people to approach basketball systematically. He developed a concept of the fundamentals and how to drill those fundamentals in practice sessions to help the players improve. He developed plays and an offensive and defensive system. He brought structure to the game where no structure had previously existed. This was an incredible development for the game and others quickly began to copy his method. And Allen's approach to the game started to become the standard for all coaches. Now granted, some of the techniques that Fog Allen had developed are now considered outdated or old-fashioned. But that's not the point. He was one of the first people to even think about basketball in terms of fundamental techniques. He laid the foundation for future basketball development. Much of modern coaching can still be traced back to the ideas of Fog Allen. And that was actually a funny thing. You see, Naismith never thought of his invention as a game that even needed a coach. When he invented basketball in 1891, he created it as a form of exercise, an amusement to pass the cold winter months until they could go back outside in the spring and play baseball. He never thought of the game in terms of competition and strategy. The idea of strategy was fine for American football, baseball, rugby, lacrosse, and soccer, but he viewed basketball as completely different. To him, it would have been like trying to have a training session in order to play tag. But Fog Allen changed all that and showed even Naismith, a dear friend of Allen, that basketball could be coached systematically. And this was the environment in which Adolf Rupp played his college basketball. As I mentioned, Fog Allen was big on drilling the players during practice sessions and Rupp soaked it all in. Everything about the way that Allen approached the game just made sense to Rupp and it would heavily influence the way that he would coach the game someday. But Rupp was never the star of the team at the collegiate level. He was a role player, but a very dedicated role player. Few players brought more enthusiasm to his game than Rupp. He was the kind of player that would bust through a locked door in order to play basketball. But there was no future as a professional for him. He did not possess the natural athleticism often required of the professional players. So he graduated from Kansas in 1923, but found it difficult to find a job at first. He returned to the campus to earn an advanced degree and work on campus at the school's cafe. And just a few years later, he found a job as a teacher and coach at Freeport High School in Illinois. He taught those boys the fundamentals of the game, and he put them through hours of drills that he learned from his old coach, Fog Allen, and he brought an intensity that was all his own. He improved the team while he was there. 
In his first year, they went 10 and 6, then 11 and 5, then 20 and 4, and then finishing in 1930 with a record of 15 and 6. While he loved coaching basketball, he was starting to have thoughts of putting his degrees to work and became an administrator in the school system because administrators made a lot more money than coaches did. But as luck would have it, that's when someone would recommend him for the new opening at the University of Kentucky. That someone was Craig Ruby, who was the head coach at the University of Illinois, not far from where Rupp was coaching the Freeport team. Based on Ruby's observations of Rupp, he called the University of Kentucky and asked them to consider Rupp to be their new head coach. Rupp drove down to Lexington, Kentucky for the interview and got the job. He was only 29 years old at the time and was paid $2,800 for the first year of the 1930-31 season. The following year, he got a raise to an even $3,000 for the whole year. And this is a good place to take a break. And when we come back, we will talk about the early part of Rupp's career at Kentucky. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Okay, we're back, and let's continue on with our story on Adolf Rupp and the early part of his time as the head coach at the University of Kentucky. Rupp was a man of vision and leadership. He had a vision that the University of Kentucky would be one of the premier basketball programs in the nation. At the time, there was no national championship tournament. Most university-level teams only played games within their region of the country, since flying on an airplane was still prohibitively expensive. But basically, most teams only traveled as far as a bus could reasonably take them. Another hindrance that Rupp had was that the university was not giving out scholarships yet. That was something for the future. So any player that he went after would still have to pay full tuition to be a student at the school. For those of you not that familiar with how athletic scholarships work, it's quite simple. When a university is trying to convince a great player to play for their team, they give that player a scholarship which pays for all of their fees related to attending the university. They can live in university housing for free, eat at the cafeteria for free, all their books are free, and of course, the classes are free as well. This allows any athletes who would otherwise not be able to afford a university education to still attend a university and earn a degree. The only condition is that the player has to continue to play for the team as part of the scholarship agreement. So with his task set before him to try to make Kentucky a premier team, he began drilling his players with even more intensity than when he coached at the high school level. And the effect was immediate. The improvement was noticeable almost overnight. His teams were always prepared, well-drilled in the fundamentals of dribbling, passing, and shooting, and conditioned to run an up-tempo style of play. But with no national championship tournament, it was difficult to tell how good they really were. But as I mentioned before, few schools at the time played outside their region of the country. Kentucky is located in the part of the United States known as the South. In reality, it's in the southeastern part of the country as opposed to the southwestern part of the country. But Rupp would regularly take his team outside of their region into the northern part of the country to play in Ohio and Illinois, and of course his favorite place, New York City. It was actually on a trip to New York in 1935 to play New York University 
that he suggested to a group of reporters that a national tournament should be organized to take the best teams from each region of the country and find out who was really number one. Just four years later, it happened. In 1939, the first national tournament was held and the University of Oregon won that first national championship. Over the next several years, Kentucky continued to play some of the best teams in the country and fared well. Now, they didn't win every single game, but they won enough to be considered one of the best teams in the country. Kentucky and Coach Rupp were on their way to prominence as a formidable basketball powerhouse. As the pages of the calendar turned to the mid-1940s, Rupp was able to put together some of the best teams he had ever coached. A number of soldiers were returning from World War II, so now there was a major influx of talent. And it was mature talent. Many of these former soldiers were already in their early to mid-twenties when they arrived on campus, not the typical 18-year-old that came to Kentucky straight from high school. These players had already matured on the battlefields of Europe and East Asia. There was little about a basketball game that would have made any of them nervous. So in 1948, Rupp finally broke through with his first national championship. The championship game was played in Madison Square Garden in New York, which was one of Rupp's favorite places, and he loved bringing his team there in order to show the city folk how good basketball could be played in his part of the country. And they defeated Baylor University from Texas by a score of 58-42. to 42. The team was led by Alex Groza at 20 points per game and Ralph Beard at just under 11 points per game. And they came back and did it again the following year in 1949. This time, they defeated Oklahoma A&M University 46-36 in a game played in Seattle, Washington. Again, they were led by Groza and Beard, who would both finish their college careers with that championship and then enter the NBA. After a year of rebuilding, they would win it again in 1951, making it three championships in four years. In 1951, they beat Kansas State University 68-58 in a game played in Minneapolis, Minnesota. That year, they were led by Cliff Hagen with 21 points per game and Frank Ramsey at 16 points per game. And both of those players would eventually be inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. But let me take a moment to go back to the 1948 and 1949 championships. Alex Groza would be drafted by the Indianapolis Olympians of the NBA, while Ralph Beard would be drafted by the Chicago Stags. But in a weird twist of fate, Beard would be traded to the Olympians immediately. So both Groza and Beard continued to play together, but this time as professionals on the Indianapolis Olympians. Groza would win the Rookie of the Year and be named an All-Star and he was twice two-time All-NBA. Beard was also named an All-Star. By all reasonable expectations, the both of them should have gone on to have fantastic professional careers as both displayed Hall of Fame potential. But their careers would only last two years at the professional level. And that's because it turned out that both of these players were shaving points during their time at the University of Kentucky. This means that both players were taking bribes to manipulate the scores of certain games in order to favor professional gamblers. This kind of activity is completely illegal in the United States and in most countries. When the NBA discovered this, they banned both players for life. And that is a whole story in itself, the famous basketball betting scandal of 1951. 
And if you want to hear more about that betting scandal, go and check out episode 14, where I go more in-depth into that story. The revelation for Rupp that some of his former players had taken money to manipulate games was unbelievable. At first, he denied it. He was so sure that he was coaching players who were above that sort of thing. As far as he was concerned, he only brought in players of the highest character. This wasn't just a stain on the Kentucky program. This was a stain on his personal character and legacy. And that was something that pained him to the core. In fact, prior to the investigation that revealed all of this, he was quoted as saying, quote, Gamblers could not touch my players, unquote. He was in a Chicago hotel room when he got the news from his friend, Coach Lon Varnell, who coached Sewanee College in Tennessee. When Varnell told him, Coach Rupp fell on the bed and began to sob. But once he had time to think about it, it started to make sense. They had played a game against Loyola Chicago back in 1949 and they had lost inexplicably. They were the superior team, but just kept making mistakes that a team like his should not be making. There were bad passes and missed shots. It was not like his team at all to play a game that poorly. But like I said, now it began to make sense. Groza and Beard were manipulating the score. In fact, that is the game that they were convicted on. They admitted to taking money for that game, and they were convicted in federal court and never played basketball again. By the time the scandal had broken, the University of Kentucky was already in the middle of the 1951-52 season. They did not win the championship, but they still had a very good year with a record of 32-2 but the scandal did rock the university. They did not play at all the following season in 1952-53, but they did resume play after their one year off and quickly returned to national prominence as one of the premier programs in the country. And that was no small feat on the part of Coach Rupp. Every other school involved in that betting scandal ceased to be a basketball powerhouse. Most of them dropped down to Division II or even Division III level of college basketball. The other schools involved in this particular betting ring are City College of New York, New York University, Long Island University, Manhattan College, Bradley University in Illinois, and the University of Toledo. If you are a fan of American college basketball, when was the last time you heard any of these schools as serious contenders for the national championship? Prior to the scandal, they were all powerhouses. These were some of the best basketball schools in the country. And the only one who is still a major program today is the University of Kentucky. And they have Coach Rupp to thank for that. His determination and personality and the support of the university helped them to continue bringing in some of the best talent available. And that is actually a good place to end part one of this episode. Rupp had his first three championships. The program was just dealt a heavy blow for this betting scandal and Rupp had just restarted the program and brought Kentucky to new levels of success. And I'll share the rest of Rupp's story in our next episode as we talk about the second half of his coaching career at the University of Kentucky. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And please go ahead and give us a rating and a review, and that will help others to find this podcast more easily. 
and check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Lawiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. And don't forget to check out sportshistorynetwork.com for more information about my podcast and the rest of the podcasts on our network. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.